Chapter 11, The Purpose of Our Dreams The new year lies before you like a spotless tract of snow. Be careful how you tread, for every mark will show. Author Unknown I hate this chapter. I am well aware of the fact that mentioning right up front that even the author doesn't like the chapter is not a smart way to grab the reader's attention, but I already messed up the foreword in the dedication, so I think by now you know I'm kind of a mess. It's the truth, though. I hate this chapter. I've written it, read it, rewritten it, deleted it four or five times, and cried over my keyboard nearly every time. Yes, me, a grown man in tears over his own writing. I don't want to talk about this at all, but I believe part of my life happened for a reason that many people could learn from, so I feel obligated to share it. This chapter of the story starts earlier in my life, much earlier. I have five older brothers. I'm the youngest. Like every youngest brother, one of your older brothers is always your hero. Mine was Sam. Sam was on the football team. All the girls wanted him. He was popular because of his peculiar talent to bring a level of fun and enthusiasm to anything he did, unlike anyone else I've ever met. Creativity and excitement radiated out of him, and people ate it up. He used that talent for good and befriended people from every walk of life. He once made a 10-foot-tall T-Rex suspended in the tall entryway of our family home. It was made entirely out of toilet paper rolls, which he spent a year saving up. He thought it was a great idea to take our old Ford minivan four-wheeling and got it high-centered on a rock. He sneaked into the house and begged me and another brother to help him push it out of the canyon so my parents wouldn't know. He lined his truck bed with plastic and spent all afternoon boiling pots of water so it could be put in the truck bed to create a mobile hot tub in the bed of his truck. When Sam was a teenager, one of the girls in the neighborhood, who was about to turn 16, confided in him that she felt lonely and that people didn't like her. When Sam found out, he got all of the teenage boys in the neighborhoods to dress up in suits and ties and individually deliver a rose to her at her front door. He didn't want anything from her. He wasn't trying to date her. He just wanted her to feel good about herself, and he wasn't afraid to go to great lengths to achieve it. Fear, that's the thing. That's what stops all of us from doing the great things we want to do, things that could make us unique and serve other people. He didn't seem to have it. My memories of growing up mostly center around things I did with Sam, despite being several years younger. We played Ninja Turtles in the backyard, hunted invisible enemy insurgents through the mangroves near our house on the beach in Fort Cam, Hawaii, and threw the football in the backyard for uncountable hours. Yet it was playing catch with a baseball that I remember most. Side note, maybe that's why I don't like baseball. He wanted to be the pitcher, so I'd play the catcher. And on more than a few occasions, I remember catching his fastball until my fingers literally started bleeding. I didn't want to let on that I was in pain because I know he'd want to stop playing with me. Sam was the best I've ever met at implementing the principles in this book. From a very young age, he was eager to take things on and worked constantly to improve at everything he did. As his skills at so many things improved, he felt no fear to take on bigger and tougher challenges. When he played the piano at church, he wasn't afraid to mix a Billy Joel song in the bass line. A normal person would be afraid that people would notice his subtle joke 
or trying to pull it off would make him stumble in front of everyone. Not him. He'd go for it. Fear was simply turned off. A normal college professor would simply teach a lesson and leave. Sam harnessed the talents of his PR students into taking on massive service projects to bring awareness to charities, and he invited many of his students to lunch at his home with his family so he could mentor them. A normal person would not put things on his bucket list like get in a bar fight or stow away on a train. Sam grew enough confidence that he didn't have to play the small game anymore. If it seemed interesting, he would go after it without fear. We grew up, and life began to happen. His body wasn't perfect, as medical depression hit him in his 30s. His marriage fell apart, and he was separated from his wife. It was the 4th of July. Early in the morning, Sam took off on his Harley, unable to bear the day. At lunchtime, I was busy building a treehouse in the backyard with my boys. At that same moment, in a city only two hours away, my dear brother was driving around town to find a tattoo parlor. Evil Knievel was famous for jumping the canyon in Twin Falls, and Sam thought it'd be hilarious if, when people found his dead body, he had an Evil Knievel tattoo on his forehead. He was in the deepest depression and could not think straight. My brother was planning his end. He wouldn't answer the phone all day, but I got a text from him. I'm sorry for not being a better brother. I love you. At around 9 p.m., Sam drove his motorcycle to the parking lot, walked to the middle of the Perrine Bridge in Twin Falls and stared at death 486 meters below. He stripped naked and stood up on the railing. The phone rang and we all knew something was very wrong. A family member answered, Are you Sam Harmer's brother? He committed suicide in Twin Falls. It was over. Then, a minute later, a second call. He had attempted suicide. All of us wondered what that meant exactly. A minute later, a third call. A police officer was in the perfect location right at that exact moment that Sam got on the railing. The officer commanded him to get down. Sam said he didn't want to cause any trouble. He just wanted an end. But he eventually stepped down. He was alive and in the emergency room. Everyone with the last name Harmer was already piling into cars and speeding toward Twin Falls. We hit 100 miles an hour at one point. We waited in the emergency room for what seemed to be an hour before we got to see him. There was a printed photo on the wall of a rustic old wooden cattle fence in the mountains that is forever burned into my mind. Sam was heavily drugged in addition to his extreme emotional distress. He barely seemed human on that long car ride to the treatment clinic back in Boise. With time, counseling, and medication, Sam stabilized. He met and married a wonderful woman who we all fell in love with and continued on with his life. He taught college courses at Boise State University as an adjunct professor, and life soldiered on. He loved his wife, his seven kids, and his job. I realized how far he'd come one night when a few members of our family went out to dinner with him, and he was almost like his old self. We were at the Cracker Barrel, and he seemed almost identical to the real Sam I'd always known. I remarked to my wife that Sam seemed so comfortable with us and happy. Finally, my brother was starting to come back. Little did I know that Sam had a note on his phone, right there in his pocket while we ate, detailing his plans for suicide. The note had just begun, and over the next few months, he'd fill in all the details as he thought it through. Sam came to family dinners, spent time with his wife and kids, went to work, made vacation plans for the future, 
and worked with his attorney on future custody arrangements. He made plans for the future at the very time that he was making plans for his end. Friday, August 4th, 2017. I like to enjoy the perks of being an internet entrepreneur, and my favorite perk is setting my own schedule. So on a Friday morning when I should have been working, I hooked up the trailer to the truck and my whole family piled in for some fun in the desert. We spent the morning dirt biking. Cole, my seven-year-old, tipped over a few times and I spent much of the morning wiping tears and being a cheerleader. We all loved dirt biking as a family, so it was an excellent day with perfect weather. As I carved dusty turns through the desert, my dear brother was four miles away, preparing to die. It was only 2 p.m., as we got into the truck to come home, I got a text from Sam. Emily read it to me as I started driving down the bumpy dirt road. Hey brothers, a friend at work was just diagnosed with cancer. He only has one month left. Got me thinking how I've been meaning to apologize for being a shitty brother. I mean it though, I've been through some intense life events over the past seven years, and I'm seeing more clearly now how I've acted. On top of it all, I was about three years into a worsening depression, as you know. Not making excuses, just explaining. I'm sorry for being distant all these years. I really do love you and always have, of course. Just realizing I need to fix a few things in my life so I can move on. No need for emotional phone calls, lol. I just wanted to say I'm sorry, Sam. I told Emily, wow, that's really great. I hope you'll start feeling more like himself. Last time we went out with him, he was really happy. Probably right as I said those words, he got out of his Uber and walked to the back of the parking lot at the hospital. There was a small, grassy area. It was 3.33 p.m. It took me a few minutes to figure out what I'd want to say to Sam. As I drove, I dictated a reply that Emily tapped out on my phone. Life throws some curveballs. I'm glad you're in a better spot now. I'd love to do more with you. A little disappointed that I can't have more emotional phone calls with you too. We went through a few revisions of the text to get it just right. I wanted to let him know that I loved him without sounding too emotional since Sam hates being stressed. We got home and got the baby to sleep and I took a nap. I had only slept five minutes when I woke up to a phone call. I would normally not have answered but I saw it was one of my brothers. I was still waking up but wanted to sound awake when I answered so I said, Hey man, what's up? In my most chipper voice. He replied in a very calm, even tone, Sam's dead. I understood the words, but had to clarify the meaning. Where is he? Is he okay? He's dead. W wait, you mean it's already over? He's dead? He's dead. He's at the emergency room in Boise. Everyone with the last name Harmer flew into cars, a hundred miles an hour. I broke down at one point in the car, but mostly I didn't feel anything. I just couldn't be sure yet. I still felt great like I had that morning and my emotions hadn't quite caught up with the situation. I even felt a little guilty talking to Emily in the car because I wasn't feeling sad and I knew I should. It still felt like a normal day, but I knew it wasn't. I parked at the hospital in nearly the same space where I'd parked a year earlier when my third child, a daughter, was born. I got out of the car and started running toward the ER doors. Trying to hurry, I was annoyed by the many police cars and yellow crime tape surrounding an area near the parking lot. I ran, weaving through the maze when I suddenly stopped in my tracks as I realized that the police cars and the yellow tape were there for Sam. I looked over and there he was. Fortunately, I was at a distance, but there he was. I lost control. 
Why would he do something like that? I felt anger more than anything. The sense of waste was overpowering. The police officers asked me a few questions. He's been battling depression for years. Yes, he attempted suicide once in the past, but that was years ago. I could only laugh when they asked if he had any enemies. None of you will understand the pain we all felt over the ensuing days unless you felt that same pain. The same pain that doesn't cause you to cry, but to howl as you cry. It was over. Sam was over. And nothing was going to go back and change it. In writing this book, I've carefully researched the current recommendations from groups such as the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention so that I can tell this story as I lived it, but more importantly, in a way that would not at all sensationalize suicide or cause harm to others. Consequently, I intentionally omitted details here that could put others at risk. Sam didn't die from any single trauma. Many factors contributed to his death, mental illness that was only partially treated, chronic pain and medications from a recent surgery, struggles in his personal life, his unwillingness to open up to others about how he was feeling, and stress. More than anything else, Sam's death pained me for its waste. There were so many options available to him. This could have been treated. Those at risk of suicide can call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Sam knew that and did not reach out for help as he should have. Help was so close to him. The solution was so simple. His brain had convinced him that he would never have a happy day ever again. Anyone who has been through difficulties knows that's not true. It was simply a problem within him that didn't allow his mind to understand that, and he could have so easily received help in the emergency room by walking in and saying, I need help. I have no will to live. He could have called the suicide hotline. He could have told anyone who could have helped him make those decisions. Here's why I needed to include this story in the book. Some of you are underdogs. Some of you hear goals and you're excited and you're ready to take them on and you feel confidence in life. You have a positive outlook. For some reason though, many people just feel beaten down right now in our society. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's social media. I don't know if it's the breakup of families. I don't know what it is. But many people feel helpless right now, and talking about goals and things they want to achieve only brings them down further. So I have to include this story here. I felt it was the right thing to do, and also to give a tribute to my brother who I love, because as I said earlier, and I meant, he really is the best person I have ever met at shutting down fear and accomplishing good things in his life that he could do to help other people. After his death, a group of Sam's friends and former students took his bucket list, which he called his to-do list, and committed to finishing it for him. They have plowed farms on a tractor, bought a round for the bar, presented an oversized check to a charity, written books, and more. This tribute to my brother shows how his life touched me, but his life reached many others. I finally feel I can tell his story in a positive way. I can just enjoy who he was without thinking of the pain of how it ended. About six months before his death, Sam posted on Facebook, I'm curious to know what my friends believe about the meaning of life. I know this is a heavy subject for Facebook. 
I'm genuinely curious what my friends believe deep down on a personal level. After my midlife crisis of sorts, I've spent the past eight years of my life searching for God and some meaning in life, and I've mostly come up short. At the same time, I don't judge those who do believe in God. In fact, I envy them. Life was certainly easier for me when I was a believer. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night suddenly concerned about my existence and my place in the universe. This lack of faith has been terrifying for me for the past few years, honestly. I felt very alone and purposeless at times, spiritually. I didn't feel like I could respond to Sam's comment on Facebook. Or maybe I didn't feel like I should since he lost his faith years ago and didn't like talking about it. Sam already knew what I believed. If I'm to be perfectly honest, I believe Sam struggled to find a purpose because he had ruled out any belief in the one being who gives life purpose. That's my belief, but it's not the point. The point, and the reason it is necessary to tell this story is this. We all need to stop setting goals in the hopes of stumbling upon some kind of purpose in our lives. Go right ahead and change your college major 20 times, and I promise you'll still feel like you haven't found your calling. Calling? If you frame the career question that way, would anyone become a plumber? Why, yes, God put me on this green earth so I could shoot human excrement through plastic pipes. A handyman, an accountant, a mailman, a banker? Nope. We reject those because there's no way that's your calling in life, right? Surely that couldn't be it. Certainly we were called to be operatic singers who delight audiences with the beauty of music, or politicians who clean up corruption, or founders of nonprofits who save children in Africa, right? If we frame our life's work by viewing it as a calling, we all too often think only the most outwardly notable goals are suitable. Yet what would the world be like without any plumbing, accounting, or mail delivery? I wish Sam could have known how his goals fit into the bigger picture. The value in achieving a goal is not the thing conquered, but the muscle you have grown in conquering it. No goal will complete you. Climb Everest, invent flying cars, have 40 kids, go to Harvard, become a senator, I don't care. You'll work yourself ragged and never find happiness. That's a life lesson I'm only beginning to understand. Just a couple of years ago, I was telling a friend about my business, the business I've spent years working to build and was so proud of. Somehow, I found myself saying something I didn't even know I felt. I said, yeah, it's great, but I'm not sure how long I can keep doing this. I mean, is my whole career going to be just about sharing an endless stream of photography tips? The words struck me as they escaped my lips. I knew I'd never be able to take them back. I realized something was bubbling up inside me. I wanted to take a big leap and find a new challenge. When I really thought about it, I could see that I was falling into the same trap as someone in college trying to find their calling. The topic of my work didn't have to be meaningful. I should have realized that the work was meaningful because it stretched me to learn. Yet, I did feel that I wanted a new challenge. I was ready to sell my business. It took two years of hard work to turn the business completely passive. It was hard to see many of the things I built change to make it investable at a lower level, but I made the move. Eventually, the business did sell, and Improved Photography is now an excellent and active site in great hands that are continuing to make it a great resource for photographers around the world. My next challenge was income school. 
which I was running as a separate business with my friend Ricky. The site was taking off, but at the time was still far below what my photography site had become. Making the decision to take on a new business was one of the best moves of my career. Income School now has become a staple in the internet marketing industry, and we have expanded with employees and multiple large websites about RVs, hunting, pets, and other topics in our portfolio. Plus, our YouTube channel, Income School, has absolutely blossomed. That was the change I made in my career when I learned how short life was. But there is another change I'm only beginning to understand. I've been running scared ever since that day when I had to lay my employees off. This morning, I woke up at 3 a.m. because I had an epiphany in my sleep about how we could approach a particular problem at work. I couldn't stop thinking about the exciting problem, so I just put on my shoes and drove over to the office to get to work. I work hard because I love my work, but I've also been working out of an inner fear that it could all come crashing down again at any moment. Because of that, if I'm honest, I have a hard time connecting with other people sometimes because I'm so focused on killing it at work. Our goals are a deeply meaningful part of who we are, but some goals will not make us any happier. I don't hold the secrets to the universe, but I have determined a purpose in life that has helped me through difficulties and made me feel genuinely happy. I had to answer my brother's question on Facebook. What was the purpose of life, at least for me, to make me happy with all of the difficulties, work, and setbacks that come in life, all of the hopes and dreams that don't come into reality, and why I was working so hard for my goals. Most of all, this meaning of life makes me feel that at every moment of my life, there is a meaning, no matter how mundane. Here it is. This is my personal approach to the meaning of life that has worked for me. The purpose of life is to improve myself and my family within our sphere. It works no matter your religious beliefs. Just improve who you are from where you currently are. We are each born into different circumstances and families. We have different opportunities, problems, struggles, and talents. That is your sphere, and it doesn't matter where it is or what it looks like. Simply improve within it. Again, I do not hold the secrets to the universe, but when I adopted that phrase as my running theory of the purpose of life, it helped me find meaning. For me, the purpose of life is to improve myself and my family within our sphere. My parents are better than my grandparents were. They really are. My grandparents were wonderful people, but they struggled too. My parents saw some of those errors, and they lived their lives in a way that fixes those problems. They are remarkably consistent and kind people. That's the sphere I was born into, and my job is to do everything I can to take the family line a step further to improve my family. I have my work cut out for me in a way that you can't understand unless you meet my parents. That means every single night with my kids has a purpose and a meaning to me. It's not about doing what is most relaxing, but what will bond us together and prepare my kids to thrive as adults. But my purpose isn't only to improve my family's position, it is to improve myself and my abilities too. I need to increase my ability to do and to serve. That's why I read 60 books per year while I'm driving in the car or working out. I feel that doing so will give me an edge. That's why I have a bucket list in the first place. 
That's why I pray for strength every morning and why I have a note on my phone where I write down my good turn each day since I'm not naturally good at thinking of others as I should. My brother's death caused me to reflect on what all my ambition and aspirations were even about. In the end, it has driven me to work faster, care more, and remember that life is too short to be idle for any of it. The game can end at any moment, and if you've let fear stop you from playing, it's time to start. My goals are changing in this new season of life. I'm learning how I can set aside the look at me, I broke a world record in tiddlywinking type of goals and change them into goals about who I am as a person. Recognizing that I've been over-focused on building an empire online to compensate for a past failure, my goals are now about building traits that make me a better person. I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, become a hot air balloon pilot, and spend a night on a private tropical island. I'm going to finish that bucket list. But I think the lesson that God has for me to learn, and what I have seen from my dear brother, is that the reason I feed work to my work energy is to help me improve myself as a person. It drives me to continually challenge myself and become stronger. Your work energy drives you. Mine drives me. Your work energy feeds your inner need to feel successful and helps you crush any problem in front of you. What I have learned over time is that living to work will only make me inescapably hungry for more. Instead, I'm learning how I can use my work energy to build a muscle to improve who I am. Our time here on this earth is short. There are seasons in life for sprinting and others for slowing down and living simply but every season has a purpose. You likely will never scratch the surface of the true potential you have. But if you understand your work energy, set a goal, focus on the highest value efforts, and groundhog the work until success, you can find yourself continually able to take on larger and more audacious goals. Life won't be vanilla for you. You will be the one who has all the confidence to put any idea that pops into their head in action. You will be the one who never seems bothered by the little things. You won't be like me in law school when I felt so trapped by work, money, or time that you can't say yes to fun. You will be the one with the happy family. You will be the one who is so excited to get up each morning that you can't sleep any longer. You will be the one being promoted at work past others who have been there longer. You will be the one people go to when they need help. You will be the strength to your family in a time of need. You will be the one who stops playing Little League. You will be the one for whom things seem to work out, and people will wonder why you're so lucky. So go become a goal animal. Go finish what you start and fearlessly take on any goal. Just remember that the whole purpose of those goals is to improve you and your ability to do good in the world.